This is the Rose Woman Pod, and I'm your host, Christine Marie Mason. Every week, this show provides a little something to help us live with more freedom in our body-mind to move from taboo to liberation. I want to inspire curiosity in any of the places where there's frozenness or secrecy or shame. And I speak a lot to women in the pod, but men are enjoying the show too, and I think that's because this applied science and spirituality stuff can help all of us be happy and free. Today we're talking about the female brain with neuropsychiatrist Dr. Luann Brizendine, the author of a book by the same name, as well as its sequel, The Male Brain, and the upcoming book, The Upgrade, The Female Brain in the Second Half of Life. Now before we get into the content, I want to do a gender disclaimer, because I'm a big believer in the androgynous soul, and I also know scientifically that male and female exist on a continuum. While we don't get into this in this pod, I've written or talked before about the 72 variations on intersex physicality at birth in babies, and on the genetic markers as well as the variations in hormone baths in utero or in infancy that direct sexual expression and gender preferences. I and my teams all celebrate human biodiversity, whether that's body shape or skin color or sexual preference or brain function. We are all this bunch of fascinations, totally unique. So that said, when I talk here about the female brain, I'm talking about people biologically designed to carry a child who at one point in their lives have had the potential for periods because that requires some common hormone paths. And as Dr. Luann will talk about, every hormone drives a specific behavior. Hormones make you want to do things like eat or not eat or flirt or withdraw, etc., etc. Now, you know, on a more philosophical note, that makes you question identity and free will, right? Like who is driving the ship of your body? Is it your hormones, your microbes, your family systems, DNA, the stars, all of it? But that's probably more philosophical than we want to get into today. Get ready for a big download and let's jump into the female brain. Dr. Luann has Wrote, wrote this book, The Female Brain, very intense and controversial at the time, very exciting for women since so much of medical research is done on male subjects, um, and then The Male Brain, and then this movie that comes out based on The Female Brain. But The Female Brain was like a decade ago. And so I was the first question I was going to ask you is, what are you working on? Yes. So the new book, that the title for the new book is called The Upgrade. How the Female Brain Remakes Itself for the Better in the Second Half of Life. Oh, that is music to my menopausal ears. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, yeah, it was, that one was about five years in the making. So finally it's, it's turned in, you know how it is with their manuscripts. They, they they have a, it's like a conveyor belt. They they stick it in at the publisher, then they, they uh, start the copy editing and then all that stuff and the cover, and then they do the artwork and, you know, it's on and on. So at any rate, the current pub date will be, uh, is until April 22nd of 2022. And it's, it's scheduled to come out because that will be the 20th anniversary of the Women's Health Initiative that came out that got all women during their transition to menopause to be like abruptly just taken off and dropped off of their hormones. Well, it's an exciting time, first of all. And if anybody's listening that you're already like, I want that book, now you know. You can get on Luann's pre-publication list so she goes to the top of Amazon right when it sells. You just <laughs> yes. let me know when it's up for pre-sale. I will. We'll, we'll do this. We'll do another thing specifically on it when it comes out if you want to. I would love to hear just some of the 
the discoveries that you've that you've got in this idea. So the experience of the second half of life is largely driven by hormones, you know, at least in the transition. And so it's so amazing. I mean, it's so so for those of your audience that have read the female brain and, you know, it's just kind of it takes you through like from conception, the moment that you're that you're conceived or either if it's an X chromosome that the sperm carries, you're going to be female because you'll be XX. If it's a Y chromosome, it'll be the male. So basically from that moment of conception, we're either male or female and then if you have a Y, all during fetal life, the tiny testicles develop, they start pumping out huge volumes of testosterone that marinates that body and marinates the brain, turning it into male. And if you have no Y, you don't have any testicles, you just develop without testosterone, turning into a female brain. So by the time we're born, we either have you know, the hormones and genes that are going to be the female version or the male version. Of course, there's, you know, there's some exceptions in the middle bit for the, that's the typical kind of thing that happens during fetal life. And boom, when you're born, then the male testicles continue to pump out huge amounts of testosterone until the baby's about one year old. So, you know how baby boys are born, they have those big red, they have, <laughs> I call them the big red balls. <laughs> and they're, they're really pumping out a lot. They're just, and the girl, little girls have two years of their ovaries pumping out huge amounts of estrogen until they're about two years old. And then we go into that quiet phase called childhood up until then, you know, puberty starts up again at about, you know, the, the pulsing of the hormones will start the menstrual period and stuff start to pulse at about nine or 10 for girls. And then finally it starts the whole system up and you start your period at about, you know, 11 years old or something. So that's how all the hormones are kind of making us at that beginning stage of our life up to puberty into the male version or female version. In that sort of zero to one or two, uh, that seems like it's a very important time for female reproductive development, healthy reproductive development. Is there emerging research on how to optimize that in the first two years? So that's, we have a, there's a technical kind of phrase for that period of time. It's called infantile puberty. Wow. So it's almost like the first puberty because then, the, then the real puberty. That's what my kids went through. Yeah, they went with the infantile puberty. But we, if, as parents, you know, I mean, I didn't know, we don't, we didn't know that stuff. I mean, we, it's like, so what the biologists and scientists think are happening and why that happens in humans is that it, it's, it's starting to prime your whole reproductive system and connect it up to the parts of the brain that control your hormones. So it's kind of a continuing development you know, after you've been born of like getting that kind of reproductive system all kind of finished developing and just set. So the pause button that gets pushed for childhood where you're all your hormones are really low. You know, you're not having hormone fluctuations until your a typical girl starts the brain ones. You know, the girls kind of get crabby at nine or 10 years old. <laughs> and then the period may start at mm -hmm. 10, 11, 12 mm -hmm. in that age range. So that's like the switch gets thrown on at that point for the up and down cycles of the hormones from the ovaries and the brain. And then you start to have menstruation and you start to ovulate. Then it starts to prime. The whole female brain gets primed. Of course, the boy and the counterpart, he's the first wet dream is kind of how we say, okay, that's when the boy's reproductive system is ready, ready for action. I mean, they aren't really, but you know, it's about 13. 13 and a half years old for boys. So they're a little behind us by a couple years, as usual. <laughs> but all that's going on at that puberty is really, God, she made it, you know, Mother Nature, she made it, whatever, to make, to have us 
just ready to procreate. And girls are there. We're at our highest sex drive at age 19. Oh, I heard it was 38. Wait. Actually, well, it's, it's, it's a different kind of thing. You know, it's like it's this having baby, getting pregnant and having babies in terms of like just how our bodies are all primed to do that is probably, you know, in our early 20s and stuff or late teens. So obviously that's not how we run our lives these days. But you know how there's a hormone that makes you hungry? you know, called ghrelin, you know, so hormones, hormones have a purpose for us, you know, hormones are things that are made to cause a behavior, they're made to cause an action, they're made to cause a behavior. So it's really important just to kind of remember, this is all normal and natural. It's just like, it's just like how mother nature made it. So you'll have the urge to have sex so that you're going to procreate, you're going to get pregnant. But all this stuff around that, those hormonal surges that are marinating our female brains, they make us want to be, uh, interested in being attractive to the opposite sex. And it's kind of like, you know, the little flirtatious things. And they, they find that certain times of your period, the two days before you ovulate are the most, that's the most kind of flirtatious time. Women will tend to put on a little bit, maybe more makeup, or they'll do a little bit, whatever, they'll dress a little bit more this way. Or you'll, you'll just kind of unconsciously, you just choose to be that way because of your hormones. And it's just so, it's just so normal and natural. And it's like, like the best, best way to get pregnant is like to be seductive <laughs> the two days before ovulation, right? So that you can get pregnant. Wow. Anyway, so I think it's important to kind of know that that's, that's the driving force in our female brains in that whole stage of our lives between like maybe let's say age, let's say age 12 to 42. That chunk of our life, the hormonal messaging is going on all the time and how we want to dress, how we want to act, how we, we're very, you know, the issue of being really concerned about our appearance, which never entirely stops, but we want to be obsessive about our appearance during that stage. It's, it's got to do with like, you know, finding a mate, attracting a mate and, you know, procreation. So that's totally, totally normal. Then though, the cool thing that happens you know, and since we now, you know, this generation will probably be living to the average age of mid nineties up to a hundred. You know, there's there's a whole nother half of life out there, and the cool thing is, is as these hormones kind of recede and die down a bit again, the last time you had that was from age like two to ten. You know, you had so you you go back to a much more peaceful, focused, quiet kind of like, and and then being focused on like, what do I want? Who, who am I? What is my, what is my authenticity? I mean, there's this big, I think, interest in like, wow, who am I really at this point? Who, who am I? And let me, let me have some, I think COVID has been kind of nice because the shutdown has allowed a lot of us just to kind of go inward more and be more peaceful and maybe have whatever kind of spiritual connection we want to investigate or to have big part of our lives. It's like, you know, it's a whole lot of investigating other parts of ourselves than our than our fertility. I love this idea that hormones are meant to cause behavior. You said ghrelin for hunger. We had the example of sort of, I, I imagine some combination of estrogen, testosterone. Can you give some other examples of what hormones are doing to drive behavior? So also the, you know, the off switch for hunger is, is the hormone called leptin, L-E-P-T-I-N. So when leptin goes high, that that means you're satiated, you've had enough to eat, and it turns off your hunger. Hmm. And then, you know, I, I like to think that the way I the way I remember these words is like, 
when your stomach is growling, you have ghrelin. <laughs> it's G-H-R-E-L-I-N, ghrelin. So when your stomach is growling, you have ghrelin, and that's what's making you hungry and growling. And then the other one that turns it off is, is leptin. And so, you know, those are kinds of like the on-off switch for certain types of behavior. And the same thing for, for you know, for sleep. If you think that, you know, the melatonin in our brain that is released by our pineal gland in our brain starts to trickle out out and increase, increase, increase every hour since, you know, about six or seven o'clock, it starts to climb. And, you know, by nine or 10, it's getting, it's pretty high and it's, you know, it's, it's making us want to sleep. It's hitting the natural sleep cycle. I mean, people take supplements for that, but are, what's the difference between something that's naturally arising or occurring in your regular cycle versus something that you're engineering or intending? How much control do we have over these hormonal emissions? Oh, nowadays, I mean, you can take we can take whatever we want, you know. And I think that, for example, in my clinic, I've for many years treated women in their like 40s to 50s where their libido completely goes flat or goes very flat or flatter than their partners, which is <laughs> the you and Right, that's the problem. Men, men, don't, men don't fall off a, off a cliff with their hormones at age 51 and a half. Like that's the average age that we like boom, the ovaries have gone into retirement, boom, <laughs> at that stage. And we have less estrogen, we have no progesterone. We don't have any testosterone at that point. You know, that's kind of a, a danger zone sometimes for women, especially if they have things like osteoporosis, because, you know, estrogen is a thing that makes strong bones. And for males, it's it's testosterone. Do you know that testosterone in men, the really effective thing is it gets converted in the body to estrogen? Wait, what? So the testosterone is made by the testicles. And then it's made in all parts of the body. It flips. It goes through this little enzyme. And in, the enzyme is called aromatase. It sounds like a coffee bean, doesn't it? Like yeah, aromatase. Yeah, yeah. It's A-R-O-M-A-T-A-S-E, aromatase. Sounds like the coffee bean. So I think about the coffee bean enzyme, aromatase, changes testosterone into estrogen. And that So men's brains are full of estrogen. Even at age 60, men's brains have four times more estrogen in it than the average woman. Yeah, I think people do associate estrogen with women and testosterone with men, but both have both. Yes, they, both, both of us have both. The men have 10 times more testosterone than we have, and we have 10 times more estrogen. So it's just kind of like the flip side. And the, But the, the reason I bring up testosterone or and that's in the category called androgens, which DHEA is in too, and a lot of women take little testosterone, a little DHEA, you know, after the change or during from their 40s and their 50s. It's, it is the, it is the hormone that makes you want to have sex. Is that what you're saying on the libido side that in the clinic you give women? Yeah. So on the libido side, so testosterone makes you want to have sex. And a lot, a lot of women that I've had, you know, if you put, take the gel and put it on your skin and, and, you know, about an hour later, you're feeling that a, a vaginal kind of warmth and flushing. And then you get, then you get the urge, then you get, then you get ready to have, you get feel like, oh, that would be nice, whatever. Tend to have women take it, you know, about an hour before they want to have sex if they're going to use the gel. And women do and don't like it. I mean, it really does increase your libido and your interest in having sex or your interest in being more receptive to his coming on to you. But it also makes women's orgasms happen really fast and really fast and sharp. Like they go up real high, boom, orgasm and down. So it's more like a male or it's kind of interesting. It's like women have some complaints about the orgasm happens, comes and goes too fast. <laughs> so although some women are very happy for that, I mean, just like, the, you know, whatever, let's be clear. It's not, it's like, sometimes it's like a big effort. <laughs> so what's, what's cool about this is not 
that I'm suggesting women go out and you know order their order up their testosterone or their DHEA so much because a lot of women make find it makes them really irritable and crabby. I remember I was taking it at that stage too a bit, and I found that I would just get very I would I could just I had a very short fuse. I get very irritable, so it causes that behavior of you're getting horny and irritable at the same time. That does not sound, that does not sound good. That sounds like kind of dommy and weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't you agree, Christine? It's nice to have it as an option. A lot of women that, I, that I've had on it and stuff, mostly they go on it for a while and then they go off of it because they don't feel like uh-huh. it's not kind of a peaceful feeling. Most of the advice that I've heard is you just invest in longer foreplay and visualization. And as, if you, as long as you get over the initial, eh, I don't want to do it, it comes on pretty quickly, 20 minutes or so. Yeah. But I'm just saying that the, the hormones and behavior thing that we were talking about is very, and you know, but I'm thinking like nowadays, there's not that many doctors who are that helpful with it actually, just because so many doctors in the, with the 2002 Women's Health Initiative, just like they just went out of the hormone business. They completely, and you know, only 20% of OBGYNs get any training now at all in what? hormones? What about these bio bioidentical? Oh, the bioidentical. So the and and it's that's very frowned on by the the traditional medical profession still because of uh, regulation issues and not yeah. So there's you know there's there's controversies all over the place with this stuff. But my basic thing is like the nice thing about the bioidenticals is that they are the same hormone as your body makes. I think bioidentical is kind of a sort of a misnomer in that the only thing that's really natural is the stuff that's coming out of your ovary, making it all by itself, you know, and it's being drip, 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 drip into your bloodstream all day long, all the time. Whereas if you take a pill or a patch or you take a gel or a cream, you know, it's being through your skin and it's coming in a whole different way. So, but I think women should be, I think women should have lots of things in their toolbox to experiment with, to find what, what really suits them and be willing to kind of change it up with some some medical guidance, you know, is, is, is the best the best of all worlds, is my opinion. I, I love that there are options available. And the, I'd like to go back to this piece of what is happening while you're getting steeped in all this estrogen as a girl, as you're coming of age. And we understand more about how it impacts sexual interactions and seduction and all of that. Does it do other things to the way we make decisions or create connections or relationships other than the sexual, sensual, reproductive part? Yes. So, of course, you know, we're, you know, human beings are like the the most social creatures or some of the most social creatures on the planet. So it's, it, if you think about, of course, of course, Mother Nature made it so hormones are going to cause a whole lot of increased types of social interaction. So estrogen's biggest thing that it stimulates, it's almost like it turns the switch on this other hormone that everybody's heard about. Everybody's heard about oxytocin, right? So as one of estrogen's main roles is to stimulate those little cells in the brain that make oxytocin. And oxytocin is called the hormone of love, the maternal attachment. It makes you want to, when someone gives you a hug or you want to hug someone else, it's like oxytocin gets released, that really nice feeling that you get after having a hug from somebody that cares about you and you you want to give someone. So the oxytocin is kind of the, I think it's the snuggle and cuddle hormone. And so, yeah, those those hormones do that. And if it's not just the cuddle and snuggle, it's making you want to have more social interactions with people. So it's a very 
spray. They were even giving it for a while in the nasal spray to autistic autistic children to try and help them. They, they thought it might stimulate social social ability and social interaction amongst autistic kids, and it did a little bit. It, it wasn't very. It wasn't as much as they had hoped, but you know, it did it did help a little bit. So oxytocin has kind of been the the hormone of the last ten years. You know. So does that correlate as you age, as in the sort of second half of life, uh, with a decrease in socialization or sociability among older women? You know, the issue of giving someone a hug or the, or the getting oxytocin out, and there's been a lot of people in the economics and financial uh, st- studies world that have given oxytocin, and it, it doubles your willingness to trust your financial advisor. What are they? Are they like are they blasting that in the office? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it just blows your mind that like, so they've, they've been doing all these, they've been doing these studies for over the last decade and, and um, the oxytocin group versus the placebo group were, were willing to trust their, their financial advisors um, at least double what the others were. So the issue about feeling trusting towards a person that you just let hug you is part and parcel of what oxytocin does for you. And But of course, as your estrogen goes down to a, just whatever level, you're not you're not also not making as much oxytocin. So that doesn't mean you're going to be asocial or not social, because you know, of course, human beings are like we're 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 really social with or without oxytocin. And males don't have as much oxytocin. They have, of course, some, but they don't have as much. It's I think for the female brain, it's almost like you have your foot on the gas pedal of social interaction when you're younger. And do you know it's really like you're you're just flooring at 80 miles an hour down the freeway. And as you, you know, go through the transition, you're able to kind of lit off of it a little bit and it's not it's not pushing you so hard for social interaction. Which is which is then you can have a little bit more of I call it kind of me time and self-care and it gets you more time for, for uh, reflection and um, kind of thought, thought, what I call thoughtful interactions, thoughtful interactions. I know for me, it's been like really wonderful to be able to, you know, pause before I say something or to think about whether or not I want to say, you know, anything at all about a certain subject to someone. I've just become much less of a blabbermouth. <laughs> I don't. I think it's the you know the the, the talkative and uh, part of that for those of us who like to talk or social interaction. So it there is a shift. There's a there's a downshifting into a play into a space that makes us I think more able to listen to our own hearts and more able to listen to ourselves. Do you ever ponder the question of where identity and free will live in you? As it pertains to microbes that are controlling your behavior or neurotransmitters or, you know, hormones and things like that. Like, what is you choosing and what is just this big bag of chemicals and microbes that's choosing on your behalf? I know. So there's all this. So, you know, like, like, like we talked about, like the, the function of a hormone is to cause a behavior, you know, and it's like, you just feel like, gosh, what am I a puppet on just there's all these levers working inside me and all these little microbiome, all the, all the, they're releasing all these little chemicals into your system. And if you have the good ones versus the bad ones, or you get them in balance or not in balance, are they making me crabby or, or too inflamed and too irritable? You know, it's like, the answer the answer is i think that the, and the issue of free will is that we live in a body a human body that has all these levers being pushed every sec every millisecond 
of our lives. So that I think of as being kind of the background, right? It's kind of like background noise. It's always there. And then it's almost like a big wave comes in that, like say the hunger wave, the hunger wave starts coming in and building up a little bit and building up. So those waves in us start to shift and push us in a certain direction towards what we need next. If we need food next, it goes for food. If we're tired enough, it makes us, you know, take a rest if we need to take a rest. So there's, we're, we're living inside this body with waves that are ebbing and flowing all the time. That's sort of tuning into yourself, I think, too, knowing yourself, knowing about your own waves, listening to your own waves, and and, and honoring them in such a way that that you have the ability to then pull back and say, I don't think I'm going to make this decision right now until I have something to eat, (laughs) just as a basic example, you know, or I should probably get a good night's sleep before I make a decision about such and such. You know, it's like we know ourselves pretty well and these honoring the waves of our own needs, our own biological needs. I think you get better at that as you get older, much better at that. I use some biometric kind of tracking devices like the Aura Ring. And so for a lot of health indicators, I've been able to clarify my patterns through this data. Is there anything that women are using to track their hormonal cycles? Like if I, if someone wanted to look at nine, for 90 days and understand what was going on so that they could marry the manifestation of symptoms to what the data was underneath and really say, oh, I'm, I'm having a spike in this hormone or something. Is anything like that coming down the road? Yeah, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, there's there's some people yes. working on that. It'd be very cool. And so, see, because hormones change every millisecond, remember that the follicle stimulating hormone, the FSH, that, that, that starts to starts to increase at on day three of bleeding. So day three of your cycle, when day three of bleeding comes, it starts to go up, 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 up you know, until ovulation. And so they used to measure that to see where you were perimenopause, menopause, or not or premenopause. It's just, and the, because it changes almost like every couple of seconds to do a blood test on it became both, both expensive and stupid because it like 10 minutes later, it could completely change. So they've stopped doing a lot of hormone tests because things change so rapidly. But it would, wouldn't it be great to have some kind of a thing that you could just wear that would sample your, you know, like some people now, you're able, if you have diabetes, you're able to have the, the wearables that allow you to know what your blood glucose is without having to always, I guess, prick your finger or you're trying to follow your blood pressure, follow your heart rate. So those kinds of wearables are not available yet for hormones. So that's a, that's, that would be you know, that's kind of a next step. Wouldn't that be nice to be able to know that, to know where you are in your cycle? Yeah. Or to, I mean, maybe it could be some kind of a sniffer where it's smelling the emissions <laughs> of the skin. I mean, who knows? Yes. Anyway, that's that's unfortunate because you say this thing about how we have a lot of self-awareness, but I can remember a time when I was learning to practice yoga and I could not feel my organs between my rib cage and my pelvic basin. Like if you told me to feel my liver, I would not know. It was just a big black box in there, you know? And then with practice, I became aware of, oh, that's where it is. Okay, now I can feel that organ and I can feel that part of my intestines. But that black box feeling is how I feel about the hormones flowing in my system. Mm-hmm. You know, so so to be able to 
interrupt it as you're suggesting with the behavioral therapy. All I can do is notice that, oh, I'm feeling hungry or I'm feeling tired, but I, I would not be able to tell you the driver of that. And so that's a little, that's deeply frustrating. But you know, I think it doesn't have to be for like, let's take the hunger thing, for example, because I really believe that part of what we try to get to is like to be able to have, um, you know, a free will and self-will about making choices about things. I mean, that's our, that's a big goal to be able to have as much knowledge as we can have so we can, you know, make the best decisions for ourselves. So that, that idea of, um, I do believe that you you can tune into a lot of your rhythms. You can, def, I mean, you can definitely tune into your hunger, or you can de- tune into your, you know. I know a lot a lot of us who to work online all the time. It's like you know, working at home. I think has allowed people to tune into their own body's rhythms more. Like you can just get up and go to the bathroom when you need to if you're at home. I mean, there's just like a lot. There's a lot of like comfort things that have to do with just tuning into your body, or you can get up and get a snack when you need to. You know, you you can do those things when your body is saying I need this rather than being, you know, stuck, you know, an hour and a half away from home in some office. I mean, that's a whole, you know, that's, it's, it's, you're only going to be interested in listening to the signals your body sends you and taking them seriously and honoring them if you have the ability to respond to them right then or very quickly. Mm. So do you have any behavioral prescriptions to optimize a woman's hormones in midlife? There's about, about half of women will end up with enough of a bottoming out of their estrogen during the transition years. Let me let me tell you what happens about, with the hot flash thing, because if your estrogen bottoms out so much, usually, you know, if you walk into a room or you're in a room and the temperature changes by 10 degrees up or down, you'll either be cold or hot, 10 degrees, right? What happens is, is that during the, during the menopause transition, that temperature range that you feel hot or cold is like one degree, not 10. <laughs> so if it goes up one degree, you'll be hot. If it goes down one degree, you'll be cold. It's very, you're, it's, it happens to do in the area of the brain called the hypothalamus. It changes your, the thermostat all of a sudden gets massively changed. And that when it's happening at night and you're just like sweating and you can't sleep or you're in board meetings or you're in, you know, you're in places where you just, you know, it's just t- totally wrecking your life and your ability to listen to your own body. And it's just that I think those that's the time most all doctors now and all of the, you know, it's it's a whole sea change in the last two or three years that taking taking the hormones for the four or five years during the transition is perfectly safe. It does not give you more chance of breast cancer. It does not give you more chance of other things. So, they it's it's um, reasonable to do that at that stage to really help your body acclimatize to that transition. So, that's kind of the the baseline of that. It could be bioidentical. It could be an oral pill. It could be a patch. It can be you know whatever you find is going to work for you. So we'll do we'll pay attention to ourselves and we'll tune into the actual biorhythms we have, hormones if you're really having a hard time with it. And then I think it's an exciting idea to look forward to the second childhood, this sort of two to 10. So how, how, do, how what's the anecdotal, like what are women telling you about their experiences in that period of life? After the whole fluctuation, stuff. so ex- that they're very excited. It's yeah, so exciting yeah. for people. Yeah, exactly. Because you know, it also coincides with the time that ki- people's kids are grown up, or they're you know they're not. 
most women aren't having infants at 50 years old. Some are, but you know, most aren't. Um, you know, you know, and a whole a lot, most women think that, that after they've already had their kids at 50 or 55, they don't want a whole nother batch of little kids. It's a, it's a big, that'd be a tall order. So let's just assume that like a, the a bulk of women are like, it's coinciding with a time when you've got some extra free time. You've got maybe some more choices or you're making more very conscious choices about your professional life or about your work life or about your, about it. And, and you can, women are just like enjoying taking up some new hobbies. Like, you know, maybe someone always wanted to, to learn to paint, do oil painting or acrylic painting and taking lessons. Or like, I know for me, I, I, spent about three years doing um learning you know professional photography and learning all you know learning all the skill set of of that and that was just so much fun so women are just like feeling like all of a sudden oh wow i get to take on some things that i just you know are been calling to me or you'll find you'll find that some of the girlfriend is doing something that sounded cool and then you can just kind of like okay that sounds like very cool i'll go off with her and kind of explore some of that it's it's a very much your dance card is all of a sudden open and your your interest in exploring other things is just really become supercharged and your ability to play sort of comes back mm, I, I i have this visual of like a little child um with a magnifying glass looking at bugs <laughs> you know um is the same thing happening to my partner during this time if i have a male partner so the men men's testosterone level you know is kind of what you kind of gauge is going through the, those kinds of transitions and there's this there's this so much they have so much more than they need at like say age 19 to 30 they have a huge amount more than they need uh, I mean well, when I say need need to support sexual function and that kind of thing so they have a lot extra running around and the, the scientists feel like that probably had to do with also needing to have more of that um, the aggressive side of testosterone for protection and that kind of thing which was you know you don't I mean you may use that some in different areas of your life but so men then start to lose their testosterone about one percent per year after about 30 but remember they've already got so much more than they need so around about age 50 or 60 they may have lost a bunch of their testosterone they may have lost 30 or 40 percent but they've still got plenty ex excess so really a man's uh, observation of changes for hormonal decrease maybe won't happen until their 70s They'll be um, a little out of sync with you if you're the same age. What do you think that means for generational mating? Like someone always told me, I don't know, I don't even remember what the number was, but there was some sort of rule of thumb of how much older and younger than yourself is like an appropriate number to date. And leave it out of the outlier category of true love across the generations, you know, May, December. But if that's the case, like what is nature's design intent with that? See, men still have sperm that can be that are they're still fertile until the last squirt. You know, <laughs> they're still fertile. But remember, male, males didn't have to carry a pregnancy and have to, you know, and to have to nurture a helpless infant, you know, for all those years in the way that women do. So it's a very um, so what nature had in mind is for the male is that he, you know, he his job. A male's job, and I wrote another book called The Male Brain, right after The Female Brain. And right, it's right, funny, right. like, not right. to people ask questions about that. But, and it was not just a pamphlet. It was larger than a pamphlet. <laughs> I did see some controversial stuff anyway. on like, people using the male brain as an excuse for male bad behavior in, in courtroom situations. I was like, yes, this is a whole exactly. other interview. 
I, you know, I, I know, I, I know. Isn't that amazing? I thought like, oh, as soon as I just scratch my thing, like, like, what is going on here? However, testosterone, the one thing we know in psychology and in hormones is that the, the, the biggest bang for your buck is that testosterone makes males a 20-fold increase in aggression over females in terms of aggressive behavior. That's just, you know, that's an accepted difference. Male's job, according to Mother Nature, is to go out and impregnate as many females as possible. And until the day they die. That's not part of our social reality or our context of that, but, you know, it's, that's kind of the idea. And females are supposed to be, you know, being flirtatious enough and and receptive enough during their fertility cycles to become you know pregnant as many times as possible you know so it's like that's the that's mother nature's idea about how it should go well i think that that's it's it's so important to just acknowledge that like we can have whatever cultural and social design that we want but it's overlaying this base uh, intent of the reproductive intent of life wanting itself through us. And so just to learn what it is and then make some conscious choices about whether you're going to let it drive you or whether you're going to put systems in place to go over it. It's just a... And to honor the fact that it's there in you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in your partner and just honor that fact and to not blame yourself or blame the other person. It takes, to me, it takes away blame. And I don't mean it doesn't take away responsibility. You still have responsibility for the, you still have the responsibility for the actions that you do, but you can also honor the fact that you have the urge to do them because that's kind of, that's, that's the underlying principle of mother nature, but it's not how we behave in a society. Has your, has your understanding of how women's hormones affect their behavior month to month changed the way you lead your clinic? Or supervise your female employees? Well, they all kind of are up on this stuff for themselves. So there's always, I think what happens is we're all kind of open to the jokes that we all make. Like, like, oh, you know, sorry, it's it's that it's that day of the month, or I'm like this, or I just I really, I really need to take a break today. I'm so irritable. Or I just feel like, you know, cry crying, crying over dog food commercials. You know, we call it the day, the day before you start your period sometimes you just burst into tears over something silly or whatever, you know, or something. And it's just, you know, we all just it's all just normalized <laughs> the female employee in our clinics is very normalized. Of course, you know, if you're on the birth control pill, it takes all that away. So I don't know what percentage now in the United States are on oral contraceptives, but it, it's 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 not as high as you think. It's like, I think it's in about the 20%, 22% range. Yeah. A lot of, the, of younger women are learning uh, the extensive side effects and are really shunning the pill. That's, we've been talking about that with uh, uh, some of the period advisors and um, that have come on the show. This is great. I can't wait to read the upgrade. <laughs> Thank you. It's good. It's great because, you know, I couldn't write these books until I'd gone through these these periods in my own life. So writing the female brain, I was, you know, I, I went through, I had a, you know, I had my son in my, my late thirties and then I was, you know, starting into the perimenopause and, and up into the transition just at, so chapter seven of that book is called the mature female brain in, in the female brain. So you could read, if people wanted to read a little bit about this time in life, they could read just chapter seven in the female brain and the first appendix talks about um, basically sex drive and testosterone. So those, those like 20 pages, I think probably 25 pages in the female brain would be right down your alley if you wanted to kind of 
check that out. And that's kind of a, a, a preview to, to what's coming, the coming attractions. And I have one last question for you. How true to life was the 2017 movie? based on your life. Oh, Whitney Cummings plays me. It was so funny because here she is. She's this tall, gorgeous brunette, right? <laughs> and I'm this like petite, like redhead. <laughs> and she's she's she plays it very stiff. You know, she plays she plays me as a very stiff, like, you know, a very stiff, like serious scientist, you know? So the personality differences between us couldn't be more different. So I would say that was not the Dr. Brizendine that she played was was not the not not the real me. But I think that she was the vignettes and things that she captured, you know, were just, just very funny. And it was really, it was based on, it was based on different science parts from the book. So a lot of the, a lot of the vignettes that she used, a lot of the little, the, the stories and the characters that she had in there. I mean, she had a great cast, you know, she had a great, great cast in there. And uh, I think they did a, they did a great job of, of making it into something um, kind of visual and, and storytelling. So it was, I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, but it doesn't go. People that are big fans of the book, that love the book, felt that it, you know, it it didn't line up with the book as much as they had wanted to. But it was its own thing. It took it took off from there, which I thought they did a brilliant job of of doing doing what they did. People say that about books all the time. Like, did you read the book? Because if you read the book, you create this whole. Your visual imagination fills in all the gaps, and then somebody makes a movie of it, and it looks completely different than what you thought it looked like in your head. So exactly. always disappointed. So, so that I was, as, as I was saying that to you just now, I, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking like, people always say that <laughs> about do. the books and stuff. But it was funny to see someone play me in a, play me in a movie, though. That was a new, that was a new experience. Uh, not very common for a research scientist. Very cool. That was probably, a, that's probably yeah. a very short list. Uh, well, this is wonderful. Yeah, she she loved the book. She loved the book so much. She just she just felt like she was compelled to make a movie. Oh, I said that was the last question, but there was one other, and that was on, um, you know, there's this gender wars that people have invented over the last 50 years as women struggle for civil equality or even institutional systems that support your biology. Everything's sort of designed for the dominant linear masculine biology. And, you know, by differentiating, you're educating women, but sometimes it also feels like you're kind of giving men uh, or the status quo or the conservative side of things ammunition for saying like, see, women should, women are riding these hormonal cycles. La, 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 la. Oh, we should be barefoot and pregnant and home and blah, 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 <laughs> having just babies. You know? And it, the problem, see, the problem I have is it's like, as you know, from just talking to me, it like, it's like, using this stuff to reinforce stereotypes and saying that women aren't equal to men or they can't do everything that a man can do and do a lot of things somewhat better, you know, especially because it's not, things aren't just based now on pure muscular power in our society. You know, it's like, you know, we're not out there just uh, lifting logs off of the trucks or something. Um, Some people do, but it's, it's, you know, we, we humans have, and just this issue of the, the binary and the female, you know, we're more alike than different males and females. We are the same species. We are more alike than different. But we do have these, you know, the, the hormonal things that kind of push the levers for reproductive purposes. And just when you realize it's about reproductive purposes, it's not about how smart you are. It's not how you, it's not, and it's not about whether you can behave properly, you can, you know, control your emotions or control your libido or, you know, control your lecherousness or whatever. It's not, it's not about that. And it doesn't give men a pass on like, you know, like leching on women, you know, it's like just not. Right, so, right, right. 
this is what's happening biologically. And to acknowledge that that is true. And then on top of that, we have a whole social structure by which we all learn and teach our children and teach each other what's, what's appropriate behavior and, and how to value people equally how to basically also pay them, pay them equally. I mean, when I was growing up, when I was in the feminist movement in the 70s at UC Berkeley, we, we were doing the equal, equal pay for equal works. And we just like to, that it's still not passed just blows my mind. You know, we just felt like, you know, there was, of course, you know, and, and that's how women, you know, it's like, we're not there yet, women. We, ha we have to keep, we have to keep pushing and saying, you know, yeah, we have hormones. Yeah, we have hormones that get us to want to, to procreate just like males do. It's not about what kind of professions we can do. It's not about what our options are. It's not what about, you know, women aren't having 10 babies anymore, you know. So it's it's a whole different era. It's not about stereotyping. And there's a lot of um, gender fluidity that is real. I mean, that people make make choices that they're not in one camp or the other, and they don't feel in one camp or the other. So um, I'm, you know, I'm very open about how that's all going to play out. It's not about stereotyping. It's just kind of understanding some of the basic bi biology so that you can tap into what your own is telling you for self-knowledge and for being able to have as much freedom in your options as possible. Yeah. I have a hundred things I want to ask you. I want to ask you about hormone replacement. I want, I mean, hormone in the transitioning, so many things, but we are already at 45, 40, almost 50 minutes. Wow. And this is supposed to be a 30 minute show. So we already gave everybody Wahoo, a big fat bonus. We rocked it, Christine. We rocked it. We rocked it. <laughs> You're lovely. I'm so, I mean, there's so much good information in here. And it just reminds me that the more we know about what's really happening, um, the, you know, the more empowered we are with uh, how exciting it is that we have these tools to investigate the systems that are at work inside of us. What a wonderful time to be alive. Absolutely. I think it's really exciting. So anyway, thank you so much for having me in your audience. Thank Just you. thank your audience for being so open-minded to listen, because I know this topic is one that always has a lot of controversy in it. And it's, it's, it's a good topic to talk about. Yeah. And if you're somewhere in the middle, if you're intersex or you're trans or you're somewhere um, that isn't in one camp or the other so firmly, or androgynous, or asexual, or anything like that. You're also on the continuum of normal. So a lot of these findings may sound like you're being marginalized, but they're just talking to the patterns of the bulk of the cisgender community, is what I would say. And we respect and love everybody and accept them as expressions of divine creation. And you know, don't take any of this as other than science investigating the hormonal background story uh, for life in a primarily female body or male body if you're looking at the male brain book. Thank you, Dr. Luann Brizendine. What an immense download. Infantile puberty, ghrelin, leptin, the upgrade in the second half of life. Are you also not grateful for the scientists and investigators out there who dig into these kinds of questions and expand our collective knowledge base? So hit me up with your comments or questions at the.rose.woman on Instagram or at Rosebud Woman, our company. And I also want to ask a favor of you because can you believe it? We're coming up on 40 episodes and I have set a goal to have 10,000 subscribers by the end of the first year. And I'm wondering if you enjoyed this episode, if you can help me with that. If you subscribe and tell your friends who like pods about the show, I would be very, very grateful. 